what I do is I paraphrase the world. That's how I know it's art. I'm not interested in truth much at all. <laughs> I'm interested in giving people a good time. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Uh, you are here for a true treat. Uh, Robert Desai is Australia's quintessential public intellectual. Uh, a decade hosting books and writing on the ABC, uh, more than a dozen books, uh, including A Mother's Disgrace, Night Letters, Corfu and so forth, The Pleasures of Leisure and The Time of Our Lives. Uh, and now, Abracadabra. Uh, Robert is a fascinating and interesting soul. I've had him on my podcast twice. Uh, if we post this recording, it'll be the third time, and the first time I've had anyone thrice on the podcast. Uh, and it is uh, with great admiration that I speak with, uh, with Robert, uh, somebody who uh, was, uh, uh, never knew his father, who was killed in a plane crash shortly after Robert's birth, was adopted at a young age by Tom and Jean Jones, educated at North Sydney Boys High and the ANU, uh, and uh, has been a writer for the past two decades. Uh, so, Robert, I, I wanted to, uh, to start off with your uh, adoption and the fact that uh, I learned from reading Abracadabra uh, that you were born with the name Trevor Royal Desai. Yes, and Trevor then it, Royal. And then it two months became Thomas Robert Jones. Yes. So neither of your names are lifelong names. <laughs> When did you settle on your name, and, and what is it to choose one's name? Well, I smell the same, of course. That's the whole point. I decided that to say, which was my birth mother's name, was more me. I mean, I really do think it's more me. And I think that it's good to fit into your name, do you not agree? And I didn't realise at that time that Tom Jones was going to turn out to be so glamorous. <laughs> and so I chose... Robert got rid of Thomas. I thought Thomas was a little common. And the point about being born a nobody is that you don't want to be common. You want to be somebody. I'm just reading the memoir of a friend of mine who was born somewhere, really, and she spent her whole life trying to be nobody. Well, I went in the opposite direction. And so I thought the same had possibilities if I taught me to do interesting things. Your adoptive father, Tom Jones, yes. was born in the 1880s. Yes, so in that, in that sense, you know, you're just, you're just one step back to that pre-Federation era. He, he wasn't a particularly well-educated man, but he gave you a great deal, didn't he? He wasn't educated at all, and that makes you think, don't you? Don't you agree with me? He came from a large Roman Catholic family, 13 children, and he went to the parish school till he was about 12, and then he dropped out. But that's not the most important thing. The thing is, he had heart and he had a sense that his son should be anything he wanted to be. If I wanted to be a ballet dancer, he would buy the shoes, and he did buy the shoes. 
If I want to be a fireman, be a fireman. If I wanted to learn Russian, learn Russian, despite the fact that this was during the Menzies era. He read one book. It was a book on how to speak French, so that he could speak French to me. Don't you think that's marvellous? It, it's amazing. And he had to learn grammar in order to, 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 to discuss French. To find them, out what a verb was, and he had to use a subjunctive. Can you imagine? And my mother was very snooty about it and used to speak bad French across the table in order to take us down a peg. And I think that there is some point in taking people like me down a peg. <laughs> it does us good. It's good for our little characters. But my father was very supportive of learning French, and it was the first language I learned. No one needs French. Who needs French? The French need French. That's it, really. Completely useless language. But it gives you a certain je ne sais quoi. That's the point. And so I've kept it up until now. It's a sort of, it's like wearing a wonderful hat. That's what French is. And my father <laughs> understood that. And I still think it's a wonderful language, but it's different from Russian. Russian is even more wonderful, but not in a hat-like way. So one of the things about Russian is that the adjectives can change, right? They don't just have the word green to apply in one context, but the, the word green can, can change according to the, uh, the, the, the context. No one's ever asked me that question before. That's extraordinary. Yes, it's a, a very complicated, morphologically, do you mind my saying morphologically? It's a morphologically very complicated language, and you really have to be about seven to learn it properly. There is a man in the audience here tonight who has learned it perfectly without being seven. He came to the ANU and learned it, and now speaks really distressingly good Russian. But normally, ordinary people, people who aren't, I would say, probably theatrical and adventurous, and intellectual at the same time find it difficult to learn after about the age of seven. I taught it here at the ANU for, well, decades, I suppose, and really only had about three people who learned to speak it well. Yes, the word green has about 24 fools, something like that. Uh, and you have to just compute. Um, but I'm trying to learn Indonesian now, you see, uh, to keep myself on my toes. Indonesian is very simple. Morphologically, it is so simple, it's almost embarrassing. I'm finding it really, really difficult. I can't say anything. Well, what do you find challenging about Bahasa? It's the vocabulary. Okay. Because you have to learn... The vocabulary is not Indo-European. Mm. And so you have to learn combinations of syllables that have no kind of uh, roots in your consciousness. I find that really, really challenging. So I can... Send WhatsApps in Indonesian, that's not a problem. Um, and there's no past tense or future tense. So no one knows whether you have mopped the floor, will mop the floor, in the middle of mopping the floor, could possibly have mopped the floor. It's very simple in that sense. But I can't respond in conversation the way I would like to. It's just, I think, when you get older, your brain feels full. Do you know what I mean? So you've, uh, you can speak French, Russian... Uh, Indonesian, there's a few other European Well, languages. everyone can speak Spanish and Italian. There wouldn't be anyone here who <laughs> couldn't speak a bit of that. I tried Finnish, but that was pointless because the Finns all speak English better than I do. If you notice the way they do that, the Swedes are even worse. I mean, it's so humiliating. And you write in Abracadabra that language gives you everything just about the travel does. Do I say that? Let me grab the exact quote. You say... 
language does most of the things that travel does and to a more long-lasting effect. Uh, so why is it that, uh, that language gives us so much that we think we can only get by getting on a plane? I didn't know I'd said that. That's very interesting. Um, I agree with myself, of course. Uh, I think it's very well put. <laughs> language is an exploration of the entire universe, is it not? You see, nowadays it's very popular to talk about storytelling. I don't think I'm good at storytelling at all. What I'm good at is language. And there was another writer called Gillian Mears. Some of you might remember Gillian Mears. She wasn't terribly well known, but she was a fort woman and interesting. And she said, I never wanted to tell stories. I just wanted to play with language. And I think that's what I want to do. And in speaking, in exploring the universe, in exploring feelings in particular, and other people's feelings, and in exploring things that are unimaginably remote, in looking for exciting discoveries in the world, you end up telling some stories. So I do tell some. It's not what I'm good at. I'm good at, if I might say so, I think I'm good at getting these people to tell stories in giving them the vocabulary and the mysteries, I suppose, that they might like to explore, so that they will go and tell themselves stories about their own lives. I think that's what I'm good at. Are you still expanding the uh, vocabulary of your language, Kay? I'm not expanding, no. This is my private language. Uh, a lot of people do have private languages. Mine is quite complicated, morphologically. And I've had it since I was a little boy. And I suppose it's a de desperate attempt to reconfigure the world, don't you think? Which doesn't work. But it's a desperate attempt to do that. And I did that from when I was, from memory, about six. But I'm not expanding it anymore. All my effort is going fruitlessly into Indonesia. <laughs> I regret to have to report to you. But it must be fascinating designing one's own language because I mean, if you're divvying up the colour spectrum, for example, you don't have to take the existing demarcations between blue and green. You can create your own words. As Russian does not. Russian has two words for blue, and in English we have to decide which... In English we, we would use slightly different terms, um, including the one word we have, blue. I think that uh, some... Languages like Afghan language have only one word for blue-green. Whereas for me, that spectrum, blue-green, turquoise, aquamarine, is the most exciting spectrum in the language. Well, I'm wearing green tonight. Um, I've just um, ordered from the Hobart Men's Knitting Group a beautiful turquoise sweater. Turquoise brings me alive. I love it. So... But English didn't have a word for turquoise, so it had to borrow a French word. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> are there any other features of K that are different from other languages that you've studied? Is there anything? No, there... it's very Indo-European. That is, you know, it has genders and it has cases. It has past, present and future. It has subjunctives and more, actually. Because my little mind which is really not, I think, a public intellectual's mind. That's what I think. It's a magpie's mind. 
rather than the public intellectual's mind. My little mind is very Indo-European. I'm not apologizing for that. Its roots are somewhere in the steppes north of the Black Sea. It's where the Indo-Europeans come. And probably a large proportion of the audience here tonight by the look of them. But of course, um, the uh, Indians as well, and the Iranians, and a number of other peoples in Asia. But this is my natural language base. And so it's exciting to learn Indonesian because it is not Indo-European. Mm. I remember you once saying to me that you feel more at home in English than in Australia. That your your natural grounding is a linguistic one rather than a geographic one. Do you still feel that way? Yes, you're a dangerous man. You remember all these things that I've said. <laughs> you take note of them. I do. I mean, I don't want to antagonise anyone who's here tonight, but I think homeland is a conflicted word, conflicted concept. And I would hesitate to call Australia my homeland. I think English is my homeland. I think that English literature and English thought are my homeland. I belong there in a way that I don't belong in this physical place. But I will say this. I think I belong here more than I once did when people who were masculine in the way that I am masculine were not welcome. I don't feel unwelcome anymore. I think, I don't know if the audience will agree with me, but I think that all sorts of things have changed radically in that area. And so in order to feel normal, I once would go to Europe, where it seemed to me there were many models of masculinity. Um, you could throw your arms about, for example, and say, many models of masculinity, and nobody thought anything. In Australia, I felt, not ashamed, of course, one doesn't feel ashamed, but I felt that I didn't belong where you are, mm. and that I should try living somewhere else. I don't feel like that anymore. I feel that the public mind is opening to many notions of femininity and masculinity and that this is a good thing. I would like the public mind to open to the point where people feel that they can uh, act out a self that has a number of sides probably like a little chamber orchestra. No one could, can really be a symphony orchestra, or few of us can be a symphony orchestra, but I think each of us can be a chamber orchestra, or at least a trio. And so we can be an oboe and a violin and <laughs> have a piano accompanying us. I don't think we have to be just an oboe, which we used to have to be taught, playing a single note. Oh, there may be oboe players in the audience who feel that I'm limiting what an oboe can do. <laughs> Once lived with an oboe player in Canberra, actually. Some suburbs starting with G. But Canberra's grown so much that I've lost track of all the suburbs in Garton, is it? Uh, Garen? Garen, Garen, that's right. Lived with an oboe player in Garen. It was a help because he was just starting to learn the instrument and 
But now, I think, yes, that in all of us, there is a possibility playing different instruments and playing different kinds of music on these instruments and playing together. Get the oboe and the violin playing together and don't expect too much of yourself. And that's how I feel now. I mean, I live with somebody, Peter Timms, the writer, who is really very ordinary Australian and feels very at home in Australia and loves the Australian landscape and the Australian colours and the trees. And we have a beautiful block of Australian bush, Tasmania, covered in virgin bush, really, with wombats and devils and quolls and eagles and all sorts of wonderful animals and birds. And he is in paradise there and doesn't want to leave. He wouldn't go to Paris tomorrow morning if you gave him a free ticket. I would, you see. I'd, I'd go. Um, I wouldn't stay, but I'd go. He wouldn't go. He thinks Tasmania is heaven. Your chapter on Theorastley, talk, in your chapter on Theorastley, you talk about uh, why you focused your writing so much on overseas places, uh, Tunis and Normandy, Venice, Corfu, Russia. Um, why do you prefer to, to write about uh, places outside Australia? Because what I like to write about is coming home. You're a translator at heart. Perhaps I am. Perhaps I want to turn what I'm seeing into a treasure in Tunis or Rome or wherever it might be and take it home. Mm. That's what I want to do. And if you look at my particularly earlier books, this is not true of the latest book so much, although Russia turns up in the first page, pages of Nikolai Gorbachev, you will see that my books start in Cairo, they start in Rome, they start in Moscow, or St. Petersburg, and then I come home. Mm. I find this exciting somehow, whereas I would feel an imposter. I've asked myself why I don't do it. I would feel a bit of an imposter writing about Australia. I think that there are people who can do that. They're doing that. You don't need me to do that. What I'm good at doing is saying, or when my book starts in Algiers, in the Casbah, actually, in Algiers, Start in Algiers, get you excited, make your eyes open wide, get you listening to every syllable. And then we start bit by bit in a zigzag sort of way. Seizing on the treasures we find in our path, the beautiful things, we come home. I think that's what I do. And I leave home to others, really. It doesn't feel right. I thought perhaps I could write a poem at least, or a short story or something about Tasmania. I'm fond of Tasmania. But I don't feel rooted there. And there is an extraordinary or a really interesting genre of people who interpret overseas places through an Australian eye. I'm thinking about you know, Clive James experiencing the UK, Michelle de Kretzer in, uh, in Paris, Peter Robb in Italy, uh, those people, those Australians who, who go off and tell us, or tell a story as to what it is to be an Australian in each of those places. Because we have to find language we've never used before to describe what we're seeing. Yeah, maybe that's it. But also, you see, 
when I travel, I recrystallize. Mm. I'm not sure if there is such a word, but you know what I mean. All the sort of little fragments and shards that make up me, Robert, they cluster together when I go to Morocco or I go to France or I go to Florence into a different shape. This is very exciting. Of course it's exciting. And it's not going to happen if I just stay at home. home it's not going to happen because home, in the sense of the domestic, prefers you to stay the same shape because you can be easily dealt with. You can do something strange on the odd Friday night. But basically, you should stay <laughs> the same for everybody's sake, the children's sake, the spouse's sake, and in my case, the dog's sake. My dog gets very upset if I even change into different clothes <laughs> or wear the wrong shoes at the wrong time of day. They want you to stay the same. I don't want to stay the same. Life is too short. I don't want to stay the same. I want to recrystallize. And so I must go to Helsinki and I must go to St. Petersburg and I must go to London. London's a good place to experiment with different shapes because it's so rich, I think, really, uh, in a way that perhaps uh, Rome and even Paris are not. I appreciate London very much. It's a hard time to be a Russophile, uh, given everything that's going on in Ukraine. Uh, um, I'm not sure Australians can even travel to, to, to Russia at the moment. Um, how, do you, how do you think about Russia, Putin's Russia right now, and how does that change your conceptualisation of the country you know so well? I hoping you wouldn't ask me that. <clears throat> well, I'm experiencing a kind of grief, if I might say so. There is nothing that I can say that you have not all read. You have watched SBS, you have watched the ABC, you have read... The Guardian, I hope. As I do every morning, I mean, it annoys me. It annoys me so much, The Guardian. But what else is there, really? So I read it. Grind my teeth. I feel grief. Because my fault in life, my great fault, is to be too high-minded. I thought that the Russia that I loved was a freedom-loving country and that the culture that I encountered at Moscow University, and not only there, but amongst friends, would blossom and grow even stronger, and everybody would go to the ballet, and everybody would write wonderful novels that we would read in translation in the West, and a new country would be born, a rich country, with enlightenment roots, I suppose is what I thought, with enlightenment roots, and it hasn't happened, I was wrong. And my reaction would be, I suppose, if I'm feeling intolerant, as, as it is about a number of countries at the moment, that a barbarism has grown up in the country. That, did I love it? Did I love it? I'm not sure if I loved it. I loved a 19th century dream. That's what I loved. And I loved being a prince in Russia because I was a prince. I had American dollars. I could go to the dollar shop and buy oranges in winter. I had beautiful clothes. Okay, but in Kmart, that didn't matter where they were from. They were beautiful. And that was naive of me. I think I'd been naive in many regards, but with regard to Russia, and now I am grief-stricken, and I don't know what to think, and I don't know how to react. 
and I turn it off when it comes on SPS. I'm sorry, but I turn it off. There will be people in the audience who think differently, but this is how I have reacted. I think that empire is an evil thing. I think that an empire has been uh, created again in those lands and it will continue to be created as it will be in China, I'm sure. Uh, perhaps Mr Modi, for that matter, I don't know, would like to recreate some kind of subcontinental empire. But at the heart of all this is some sort of notion of a homeland which is sacred and that always, always leads to violence. The IRA believe that, the Israelis believe that, all over the world people believe that their homeland is sacred. I cannot buy this. Homelands are dear. I do not believe that homelands are sacred. I believe they are just homelands. And I like George Steiner's view. I'll finish on this note. He said, George Steiner was Jewish, of course. He went to the synagogue the day I interviewed him. He said, I've got to finish now, I've got to go to the synagogue, it's Friday. Although I've come all the way from Australia. Boom, the end, we went to the synagogue. He did, he dropped me off. He said, I like the snail. I carry my home on my back. Thank you, George Steiner. I would like to live in a world where more people carry their homelands on their backs. So think about George Orwell's distinction between loving your country and thinking that it is better than all the others. Uh, and that uh, notes on nationalism and the, uh, at the end of World War II there, recognising the, the dangers of, uh, of, of a nationalism that is grounded in superiority to others rather than in, in love, in exclusion rather than admiration. We're superior in certain things in Australia, aren't we? I mean, we just are. I've travelled a lot. I've been to maybe 60 different countries. Australia does certain things better. Not everything, but certain things better than, from my point of view, almost anyone. But I don't love it more for doing that, and I don't think it's sacred. And I don't want to live anywhere else, I must say, except possibly Denmark, but that will be a treat, doesn't Don't you think Denmark seems to be so civilised, extraordinarily civilised? Sweden, Finland, Norway, amazing. And I would like to point out, they all have kings and queens, except Finland. <laughs> Something to be said for kings and queens. You don't agree, I'm sure, but you're a Labour politician. But I think there's something to be said for them. Apart from anything else, it's the theatre. There's not enough theatre. And Kings and Queens, pure theatre, really cheap. That, to be said, they, they do have their own Kings and Queens. They don't have to borrow someone else's. That's true. But I think there's an advantage in having a head of state who is 12,000 miles away and couldn't give a damn. <laughs> uh, you quote David Hare saying that art is life with the mystery restored and journalism is life with the mystery taken out. How do you ensure that you're making art rather than inadvertently doing journalism? It's a little bit of journalism in the book, but it's art journalism, really. It's not pure journalism, is it? 
You see, what I do is I paraphrase the world. That's how I know it's art. I'm not interested in truth much at all. <laughs> I'm interested in giving people a good time. And a couple of nights ago, I was watching a program about Nazis, who is just about my favourite painter. And he had a wonderful portrait of a woman in a hat. And it's his wife, actually. Fabulous hat, about a metre high. If you look at her realistically, she's hideous. She's green and red and yellow and she's misshapen. And the hat's a disaster. Painting is genius. It fills you with joy. It makes you want to become a painter. It makes you want to be that. This is art. That's what I would like to do. I haven't quite done it yet, but I'm heading in the right direction. And so when people say to me, did you really say this in 1956? Oh, I don't know. I probably say I did because I wanted something that rhymes with 56 in the next line. <laughs> it's art. It's a paraphrasing of the world. It's a paraphrasing of my emotional and intellectual response to the world. Emotions and the intellect meet in the heart. It's, that's how we use the word in English. The Indonesians unaccountably say the liver, which I think is an unfortunate expression. But we say the heart. It's how my heart responds to the world when I open my eyes and open my ears and look. And so then I pick up my pen and I paraphrase it. And it's not the world. It's little Robert paraphrasing what he feels when he looks at the world. That is art. Whereas if you're going to write the Wikipedia about article, about Matisse's wife, you have to take a completely different view, of course. It's a different genre, hasn't it? You might use a pen or you might use a computer. It has nothing in common with what an artist does, it seems to me. You're a great consumer and producer of books uh, in, in your various capacities. Do you have any thoughts for us as, uh, as to becoming better readers or for those who uh, hope one day to, to write their life story? Uh, do you, when do you read? Do you give up on books? Do you read a lot of books? Uh, and much the same for writing. Do you have you ways? You the advice. And in addition to that, you're going to write a memoir, I'm sure, one day, because you've got a lot of interesting things to say. The interesting thing about me, as opposed to you, is that I have not had a particularly interesting life. I've had a fairly, I think, eventless life. Not, perhaps, a completely well tepid life, no. There's been some heat there. But I don't think I've had a very interesting life. I haven't really done anything very much. I mean, you know, I grew up, got married, got divorced. Well, everyone does that. I went to university. Well, who doesn't go to university nowadays? Everyone goes to university. I don't feel... I've actually initiated any events at great moment. The radio program was a kind of event, but I mean, everyone has a job. That was my job. But my mind is lively <laughs> because, because, because it's a conversation. And if you are to elaborate any particular 
talent in life, I would suggest it's not how to love, it's how to have a conversation. How to listen, how to respond, how to be wrong happily, and how to rephrase and to paraphrase what you think given the audience. But I don't think everybody has to be a writer. You do have to be a reader. As I grow older, I read less and less, I have to say. As I grow older, I reread a little bit. But as you grow older, some in the audience will know, but not everybody. Your horizons shrink a bit. It's not a tragedy. In fact, it's a relief in some ways. You don't have to be you don't have to pretend to be interested in Albanian poetry or what happened in South Georgia in 1942. You just don't have to. One of the great liberating things in my life was reading the Jeff Dyer. You know the English writer Jeff Dyer? Very funny man. He really is. Very naughty man. He says, I decided I wasn't interested in the theatre. So I don't go to the theatre. I don't buy tickets. I don't have conversations about the theatre. I don't read reviews of the theatre. I simply ignore the theatre. Well, I don't ignore the theatre, I ignore sport. But it has the same effect. It opens us up this huge vacant space in your life that you can fill with things that are more interesting to you. So instead of thinking about golf or football or tennis, I can't remember the names of all the other sports, <laughs> I think about things that are more important to me. What Jeff Dyer said liberated me. And I think that readers do best, probably, if they are honest with themselves about what they honestly want to know more about and to experience. You like just reading uh, crime novels or Norwegian noir? Then read it. Who cares what the critics say in the Times Entry Supplement? Days are to be happy in. I wrote a whole book about it. I, it doesn't make you happy. Don't do it. Uh, don't, excuse me while I just get rid of my questions about the Socceroos making the World Cup. Yeah. Just, uh, put them down over here. Uh, what are you rereading? I might reread Turgenev, for example. Hmm. Right at this moment, am I reading, rereading anything? I recently reread Madame Bovary. Um, the other thing is, of course, at my age, you reread things not realising that you're reading <laughs> I'm not sure that's unique to your age. I'm often struck with novels when I go back to them a decade on, how little I can remember and, and wonder, you know, whether they did something for me at that stage and opened, opened up a view, but very often I can't remember a whole lot of the details of the, of the plot. Oh, that's uh, most encouraging. <laughs> Delighted to hear that. Well, just ask one thing about um, YouTube, for example, that you can look at things on YouTube that you watched two weeks ago and it's a completely new experience. Uh, on the history of the Assyrians, for example, two weeks later, I can't remember who the Assyrians were. Are they different from the Assyrians, for example? Um, yes, so I will reread some Australians, but I haven't found Australian writers, by and large, to be transforming. They haven't transformed me. I think I prefer, this is just habit, I, I like 19th century Russian writers because in here is a 19th century mind. I know it is, I'm not saying this is a good thing, 
I'm just saying it is. It's a 19th century mind. It, it appreciates above all things civilization. Civilization, because a lot of Russians said it in French, you say, so I'm doing the same thing. That's what I like. Mm, not ashamed to be civilized. I don't think everything is of equal value, which I think institutions like the ANU perhaps teach in some of their departments. I think some things are a lot, lot, lot better than others, and richer than others, and more enlarging, I suppose, to read. That's what I think. I don't think Prokofiev is the same as a Kellogg's jingle. I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it made uh, too much resistance to that notion here at the ANU. Good. Uh, Finally, let us, uh, let us wrap up on Enid Blyton, which uh, Colin very, uh, very nicely uh, uh, drew, drew us in on before. Tell us why uh, you like Enid Blyton, and also enlighten us on um, the modern interpretation of Enid Blyton, which saw uh, the creation of, uh, of new names for a couple of the characters. Yes. They wouldn't allow Dick and Fanny in the latest versions of the Garden. And they're called now Rick and Freddy, which sounds like you've got a speech impediment or something. <laughs> it's Dick and Fanny, and always will be. Orlina Blyton gave me, and I would imagine half the audience. Maybe not the whole audience, but half the audience. And I found this to be true because it's all class-related in countries like India or Malaysia, Sri Lanka. I found it to be true in other countries as well, that Ina Blyton gave me a basic narrative for life. She didn't teach me how to write. Gogol taught me how to write. Gogol taught me what an unreliable narrator was. Gogol taught me how to, how to make yourself uh, an unreliable witness, I suppose, to the world. Gogol taught me what humour was. But Ina Blyton taught me the basic narrative. And the basic narrative is this. You and a couple of friends, and this is true whether you're three years old, 19, 28 or 104. The basic narrative is, with a couple of friends, you run up a tree, you have fun in the land that has come to rest at the top of the tree, and then you hurry down the tree saying hello to Mr Moonface and the saucepan man and Dan Slap. You hurry down the tree and go home for tea. This is the point. So, as I've told you already, I go home for tea at the end of each book. I just do. But it's also the narrative of my life, I think. That adventure is something that you do at the top of the tree, but the magic land, the land of fantasy, only stays for a day. And you shouldn't get stuck there. That's what Enid tells you. Five and Kieran Island was different. The, Kira, the um, what are they called really? The Kieran Island novels, the famous style novels. It's slightly different. But again, paradise, meaning, is found on an island offshore. You have to go there with your friend and a dog, of course. Always is a, there is a dog. There is a dog in, in um, the kids that grow up the family have a dog. The famous five have a dog. And meaning, excitement, validation of your life 
occurs on a small island that starts with K. And in my um, fantasy world that I created, when I created my language, it started with K. So the K is for Kieran Island? Yes, and, and I, the K yes. comes from Kieran Island, and Canberra, of course, doesn't start with K. I would like it a lot more if it did. <laughs> we have a Canberra Wines, which starts with a K, so uh, perhaps... Canberra Wines. Canberra Wines. I yes. see, I'm a Tito club. Mm. Right. That doesn't work. Uh, if anyone would like to ask a question, we have a microphone by the, by the side, so uh, please come and uh, line up if you'd like to ask Robert a question. Robert, are we going to see a dictionary of K? Will you ever let anyone else into the secret of this extraordinary language you've created? No. So the language of K is one day going to die with you? Yes, and that's all Isn't right. Isn't this a bit cruel to the rest of us? No, it's not. I am of no importance. It's of no importance. I think what is important is that it has been a joy to me, really. Uh, I've written quite a lot about it on my computer, but you need a code to get in. <laughs> <laughs> you, do you have one of these sort of burn all my papers uh, injunctions for Peter? A what? Burn all, all my papers uh, No, no, injunction? no, I have no shame. Okay. That's one of the things about not having a family. I have no shame. I'm not ashamed of anything. I'm sorry that certain things have happened, but I have really no sense of shame. And I also have no sense of honour. Not really. I said, of course, to the Australia Council that I'm honoured to receive their award because that's what you say. It's polite. And I was brought up in Lane Cove. I'm very polite. <laughs> and this pressed. But... Honour and shame don't mean much to me. I know they do in certain cultures, which I were not, was not brought up in. And so I will tell you anything. I may not tell you anything in front of these, exactly these people, but in front of somebody, I will tell you anything. And indeed, I told Caroline Baum extraordinary things, which went on to a disc, I do believe, which is in the National Library in Canberra. I don't, why would I be ashamed? My existence in this world is, is ephemeral. It, it lasts for a nanosecond. It doesn't matter. What matters is what you make of your life and if what I have written or said or thought helps you configure those things in a way that gives you pleasure, good. And I don't have children. That's the other thing, you see, to be ashamed in front of. Well, since we're, uh, we're opening up on those, uh, those topics, tell us uh, the case for the Dalliance. Well, my audience like that, yes? I well, suspect the, so. The Dalliance can be used very, quite harmlessly in English, just meaning I have the Dalliance. In Paris, depends what the city is. Of course, that can affect how you interpret the word dalliance. It can just mean, you know, a flirtation. It can mean um, a little, um, uh, well, I'm trying to think of the right word, a, a sort of intimate, well, it can mean a crush, I suppose, sometimes. But a dalliance also quite usefully means a small affair which did not interfere 
with your main emotional and sexual attachment. And many Europeans have experimented with this particular form of living. I have performed that particular way of living. I've had dalliances which, from my perspective, hurt nobody, including my partner. My partner knows about them, of course. I would not have an affair. If dalliance, if a dalliance turns into an affair, it's not a dalliance. It's an affair. And affairs end badly because that's, well, that's why they're called affairs. If affairs end well, they're called love. Is it dalliance uh, particularly French? It's certainly what I, the culture with, with which I was associated most strongly. I don't think it is, is it? I don't think so. I think that the English, particularly in sultry times, often <laughs> indulged in a dalliance. At home, in Huddersfield, perhaps, less often. Is that satisfactory? Absolutely. Uh, and do you think uh, attitudes there have changed as well? My no. sense is my sense is that attitudes towards dalliances may have perhaps hardened as attitudes towards diversity and sexuality have, have softened. Yes, I don't think there's a lot of tolerance for dalliance. Perhaps in certain parts of Lynham, I don't really know uh, <laughs> the demographics of Canberra very well. But oh, in Fitzroy in Melbourne, for example, yes, it would, nobody would be stunned to um, hear me say these things. But in general, people would find a dalliance destabilising, I suppose. Um, I think it's one of the advantages of being gay that you tend to get the rules straight fairly early on in a relationship. I mean, it's why, and you're aware, of course, I'm against gay marriage. Of course, I voted for it, naturally, because the Pope was against it. And not only for that reason. I mean, I voted for it because I think that people should be free to have any sort of arrangement they like. They can have threesomes if they want to, or they can sit in a corner with a green bucket on their head. It's, a, it's none of my business. But I think that the word marriage is an ownership word and many gay men do. I don't know about lesbians. The lesbians I know do not get married. But it's different. We tend to, because children tend not to be involved. They are now, I mean, plenty, one's got children, I mean, people have got children and they open creches and so forth. I know they do that. But by and large, gay people don't have children. So I think you're freer to say, okay, let's just sit around the kitchen table, get a few things straight. What's possible, what isn't possible. And what happened in my relationship, Peter Timms, is after about 10 years, you decide to yourself, you know, this isn't basically a sexual relationship. That would feel incestuous. This is something else, and I don't know what the name is in English. It is relation intime. It's an intimate relationship, almost endlessly intimate, and beautiful, and safe, and permanent, and forever. But it doesn't involve ownership of anybody's body. Because what we do affects nobody but us.
two people. Once you have children, it's different. Uh, once you have family around you, or a Jewish mother, perhaps, I don't know, it's going to be more complicated. But a lot of gay people, a lot of homosexual people, will, I think, be very upfront about saying, this is no longer really, primarily, a sexual relationship. It's something else. It's got erotic overtones, but that's not what it primarily is. It's friendship of a very particular, intimate, powerful, and enduring kind. But friendship hardly covers it, does it? It's an uninteresting word in English. I mean, it's a wonderful word, but it doesn't cover the variety of intimacies that thinking people can develop. But I'm not, what is the right word? I'm not propagandizing the way I live. It suits me. I'm not saying it should suit that woman or that man, that member of the audience. We live in Australia where it's allowed. And I think that's marvelous. In Indonesia, for example, I go to Indonesia a lot, or did before COVID, it's much more complicated. And in Europe, of course, it has always been a matter of social class. But that's not so to the same extent nowadays. Mm. But there is a whole movement, of course, for gay marriage now. And this is thought to be a liberation. It's not none of my business if you feel liberated, please. Je vous en prie. Robert, uh, we appear to have uh, scared off any questioners uh, some, somehow or other. I'm not sure whose who's fault this is. So I, uh, well, I talk too much. Not at all. No, no, no. I'm, I'm going to take the blame my, myself for this. So I wanted to wrap up sort of uh, where we began, which is uh, thinking about this sort of extraordinary bookending of centuries that uh, your upbringing and, uh, and, and temperament gives. Um, what is it that your, your, um, your father gave you that you wouldn't have gotten if you were raised by somebody born in the 20th century. And how has that shaped you as somebody whose views, say on the topics of sexuality you were just talking about, are, are very 21st century? My father... His great gift to me made me feel that I was infinitely precious. I think that's an inestimable gift. Whatever I might do or say or not do, I was infinitely precious. And he used the word precious. That's what he gave me. And he, he gave me a liberty because I was adopted, which I don't think many parents would find it easy to afford their children. That's what he gave me. And he gave me a love of language, because although he wasn't educated, he loved language. He taught me to count in, in how do you pronounce it, Pashto, the Afghan language, when I was a child. Because he met the Afghan camel drivers who went from Port Augusta, where he lived, to Darwin when he was a child. There was, of course, no train. There were no cars when my father was born in Port Gasa. There was no electricity. He taught me Malay, which is very similar to Indonesian, phrases and how to count in Malay. He loved language, although he wasn't educated. And he just gave me a sense that 
that with love, life could be uh, a wonderful adventure and don't be afraid. Did I want to go to Russia and leave him behind? Go! Did I want to go on to South America? Go! Go! He had a generosity of spirit which came from some sort of joy in the ability he wanted me to develop to become something out of nothing because this is the basic miracle in any life there is nothing then there is something <coughs> i was nothing i was an illegitimate nothing cross-eyed actually and he allowed me to become something i mean it's what god did with nothingness isn't it after all in time in the old testament it's the basic miracle that we all want to emulate to some extent. Every single person in this room would like to create something beautiful out of nothing. And by beautiful, I don't mean aesthetically harmonious, but something much more complicated than that that we probably don't have time to go into, but something like Matisse's woman in a hat, partly. Ugliness can also be beautiful. Something that makes other people, when they meet you, feel beautiful. And he made me feel beautiful. My mother worried a lot. She was very Calvinist. My father, not so much. I'm sure he was hell to live with. But he was wonderful as a father because everything was simply going to be a joy. Robert, I knew we'd cover a range of sparklingly interesting topics. I hadn't expected you would give me such wonderful parenting advice. I feel like the only thing I want to do now is I to go home to... nothing. No, I feel like the only thing I want to do now is to go home to my boys and to tell each of them how infinitely precious they are. So thank you for a wonderful thank conversation you. this evening. Thank you very much for the questions.